In this episode, we're going to invite ourselves to a kind of progressive dinner party. You know, like the kind of party where the group starts off at one house for the appetizer and then goes on to a new house for every new course of the meal. Well, like that, except in this case, it will be a progressive kitchen party. And we'll visit the working kitchens of artists throughout history and see what they got up to in there. We'll see the messiness that is art and life all mixed up in a kitchen and how this humblest of rooms smack dab in the middle of the chaos of the home can still be a studio if you've got the drive and wherewithal to bend it to your will. Help yourself to snacks and drinks from the fridge. Got some soda, OJ, purple stuff, And let's start our kitchen tour. listening to Pep Talks for Artists, a podcast offering small words of encouragement to all those shuffling along the artist's road. I'm your host, Amy Toledo. So remember in the darkest, most locked down days of the pandemic, when all of us were stuck within our own walls? And so many of us had kids at home too, and resorted to making work at the kitchen table in between the cracks of work and school? Well, it got me thinking that this was nothing new to the history of making art. A history that wants us to think is full of swaggering guys in big New York City lofts, hands on chins, undistracted by life's mundanity. But the reality of being an artist is in fact rife with personal stories of people who had to make it work, who squeezed making art in between the oven timer and the kid's nap, or in between the hours of a demoralizing nine to five a.k.a. a state not always conducive to creativity. And those that find a way to eke through these tough years, whether at the kitchen table or after work or after kids' bedtimes, are quite frankly the artists that have the swagger that impresses me the most. Back in the day, it was my honor to help out the artist Ida Applebrook by animating a marching figure she had drawn and painted. And I seem to remember her saying once that she often worked on her first small cinematic artist books in her kitchen while cooking dinner for her family of six. But I can't remember for sure. But anyway, she would make these little handmade zines and send them to people she didn't know in the art world and would get a lot of huffy unsubscribe responses. Now, of course, they're in museums and ha ha ha, take that dummies. But I was rewatching the power episode of Art 21 featuring Ida and I was struck by something she said. P.S. You can see the animated figure that we worked on together in the last frames of the episode. 
She said, quote, Anybody that creates, they're going to find a way to create. It doesn't matter how, end quote. And in her case, she was referring to how health problems and arthritis led to her transition from painting to soft clay and sculpture. But for me, I like to think of it as a giving permission to yourself to make art where you're at, physically, in whatever space is at hand, or during the amount of time you have, instead of waiting for perfect conditions that might never come. And while we're on the subject of the fantastic Ida Applebrook, let's remember how her own kitchen was kind of like the Cedar Tavern of kitchens during the 1970s. Amy Silman, for one, visited and even drew a sketch of it. See the Pep Talks for Artists Instagram to check it out. And in Generational Objects, Ida Applebrook's History of Feminism, Joe Applin writes about how the one and only Eleanor Anton introduced Ida and Martha Rossler and suggested she borrow Ida's Crosby Street Kitchen for a set for a performance and film she was developing. Her kitchen was bare bones and, quote, provided an ideal stage for a kitchen cooking show, end quote. Sort of like the style of Julia Child's The French Chef, which had just started airing at that time. Rosler's 1974 performance, Semiotics of the Kitchen, satirized TV cooking shows aimed at women and stay-at-home parents. She begins with a deadpan cataloging of bowls and utensils, getting angrier and angrier until, in a rage, the camera finds her cutting a Zorro-like Z in the air with a knife. And then suddenly, the fight drains out of her, and she ends with a shrug. She spoke more about her feminist role in the film as a, quote, anti-Julia Child, end quote. And that she, quote, replaces the domesticated meaning of tools with a lexicon of rage and frustration, end quote. And she exposes the fakeness of the happy housewife cliche. Rosner wasn't the only feminist artist to use the kitchen as a stand-in for the inescapable trap of domestic chores and childcare on women or stay-at-home parents of any gender. Also in the 70s, in another kitchen, artist Mimi Smith was home with two young children, and she began making large wall drawings made of knotted thread and tape measures that basically outlined the walls of her confinement and marked time. As the days of childcare and housework all marched on, largely the same. Her thread traced the shapes of furniture, the bed, dressers, appliances, doorways, windows, and even the kitchen wall telephone, complete with its curly cord. I remember seeing two of these pieces at White Columns in their glorious show that was on 70s feminism. The phone piece was there next to the door, all in black thread with flashes of yellow in the measuring tape accents. And the piece was made in 1973, the year I was born. So it was eerie 
because I was standing there, a new parent myself, looking at something an artist of my mother's generation made about her experience, and it was like a beamed message from one parent to another. And I saw that thread phone and felt her feelings of being trapped. She writes about the thread works, quote, I felt that the repetitious knotting and measuring process symbolized my existence, both visually and conceptually, which had become machine-like and repetitive, end quote. In the book, A Question of Balance, Artists and Writers on Motherhood, edited by Judith Pierce Rosenberg, artist Betty Saar says, quote, I've always been a kitchen artist. Basically, I worked around the family and things got done. You can have the schedule in your mind, but if your child has the measles, you take care of the kid, end quote. She would make woodcuts or serigraphs at home when her kids were small and when getting time at a printmaking studio wasn't practical. Saar created prints early, etchings, woodcuts, and serigraphs, and collages and assemblages, 3D collages, later on, exploring her interest in mystical, occult, personal, and political themes. These assemblages often were made with old frames, windows, and doors, and each panel would have a distinct treatment, often painted or having pasted clippings stuck down or including physical objects. In her piece, Black Girl's Window, from 1969, a silhouetted figure peeks in or out from a window pane in an old window frame. The hands are pressed against the glass as if looking in or out towards something with longing. Other imagery includes paintings of a skeleton, moons and stars, and an old daguerreotype photo still in its frame. In the same way as Mimi Smith, you get a sense of someone trapped in a domestic space, longing for escape. Saar credits a Joseph Cornell exhibition as her first introduction to the possibilities of assemblage, which is an interesting coincidence because Joseph Cornell was also a kitchen artist. Cornell was a reclusive artist who lived in his mother's house in Queens for most of his life, rarely going farther away than Manhattan. In an article in The Guardian, Olivia Lang writes that although he, quote, didn't attempt to physically escape his circumstances, he chose rather to master the hard knack of conjuring infinite space from a circumscribed realm. He began to make collages of his own, sitting with scissors and glue at the kitchen table of 3708 Utopia Parkway his home from 1929 until his death in 1972. He worked mostly at night, his mother asleep upstairs, and Robert, his brother, dozing in the sitting room, surrounded by model trains, end quote. Eventually, his collages became assemblages and began to have box frames and house 3D elements containing paper ephemera, toys, magazine clippings, cups and marbles, showing the variety of things he collected 
from New York City thrift stores. And next on our tour, we're going to visit the kitchen, or kitchen table rather, of the artist Carrie Mae Weems. Carrie Mae Weems not only made work in her kitchen, but used it as a stage set for her powerful black and white photography body of work titled The Kitchen Table Series in 1990. She lived and worked as a professor in a small town called Northampton, Massachusetts, and brought the local community into her kitchen to act as subjects. In the scenes she shot, you can see her neighbor Dawn and a little girl who she had seen outside chasing a boy with a stick and her friend and fellow teacher at Hampshire School who would come over occasionally for, quote, wine and collard greens. And of course, self-portraits of Weems herself. In a 2018 lecture at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., Weems said, quote, I'm very interested not only in the work that I make, but I'm also interested in the context in which the work is being made and who is around me, end quote. In other words, the context in which the work is being made, the kitchen, became itself a content in her work. She remembered her female students, when they would be photographed, they would angle away, hide behind their hair, quote, they were never square to the camera, end quote, versus her male students, who seemed more confident and were always looking directly at the lens. She says she wanted to, quote, present another way the female subject could be made, end quote. And at this small domestic table, a female or a black body could be squared up, remade or re-represented, and the world could be invited in to play on it like a stage. And moving on, I'd like to pop over to Robert Rauschenberg's kitchen next. In New York, Rauschenberg's kitchen was a social butterfly, hosting the art world's glitterati. But when he moved to Captiva, Florida, his house and studio were so small, quote, he couldn't get back far enough to see the big paintings he was working on, says Michael Kimmelman of the New York Times. So he built a wall away from the house to lean the paintings against. He would scramble up to his kitchen and look out the window, the only way to have a good view, end quote. So maybe that's not technically art made in a kitchen, but it's art viewed from a kitchen and I think it's close enough. One of his combines from 1960 included a cup and spoon too. And a few more quick stops before the meal is done. Remember Alice Neal's painting of a turkey in the sink called Thanksgiving from 1965? She only worked from life in those days, so I like to imagine her struck all at once by it and pausing all cookery to plop down right in front of it and paint it in situ in the kitchen. 
And also, did you know sometimes Alexander Calder's wife, Louisa, would notice a missing fork or wish for an additional serving spoon, and Alexander would just bust out some aluminum or silver, and lickety-split, a new utensil would appear to meet Louisa's needs, often with an artful flourish or an added curlicue. And finally, one last stop in a kitchen in Greenwich Village on West 4th Street at the apartment of poet and collage artist Anne Ryan. Ryan produced abstract, rigorously formal, beautifully calibrated small works made of bits of rag paper. And this was during a period when the abstract expressionists were dominating the zeitgeist and everything was go big or go home. Her work was a quiet antidote to all that pomp. Deeply considered and understated and nurtured to life in her private, unassuming, domestic sanctuary. So what can we glean from peeking into these nine humble kitchens that ended up incubating so many powerful and moving works of art? For me, all these stories underline how great art can be made anywhere. We don't need huge lofts or architect designed spaces with white walls as far as the eye can see. We also don't need clear calendars because a spare hour or two snatched back from a busy day will actually suffice. A kitchen is a place, yes, but also a symbol for a real life lived. And a real life can't just be shunted to the side so that we can make our work. It's all mixed up in the blender for us and it was all mixed up in the blender for them. But they still found a way to create where they sat with the time they had at that moment. And ultimately, those challenges actually led to some really cool stuff. They didn't put things off, hoping for more ideal conditions, but used what was at hand, a kitchen, and made great art anyway. been listening to pep talks for artists if you'd like to connect with the podcast on instagram please find it at pep talks for artists i really appreciate you stopping by and i'll see you next time a very special thanks to rita mcdonald and Derek stuples for their contributions to this episode Good night. Thank you.